but it's, it's good to see everybody. So before I even tell you which portion of scripture we're going to be looking at uh, this evening, um, I'd just be curious to hear your opinion on what you think um, would be culturally speaking, or maybe just generally speaking, kind of the, like a, maybe an unpopular category of message to preach from when we're looking at scripture. What would, like a like category, I'm not even looking for like specific. Money. Money, yeah, and so that, that I have to tell you, even though, so if you were doing a series through Proverbs, that comes up a lot. Um, but because there are so many charlatans and, and things like that out there, I've noticed, uh, so I, this is year 21, this is year 21 for me, uh, serving in ministry full time. And uh, I know that when that subject comes up, I always try and be very careful how I address it because I don't, I'm, I'm always mindful. I don't want to be lumped in with people like that. But unfortunately, even though that's a subject we should talk about, because of stuff like that, you end up talking about it less, right? Because it's awkward, wouldn't you say? Like that could be an awkward subject. Um, and, any others? And by the way, you can see where we're going with this, right? Like tonight we're gonna, it's not that that we're talking about. And we're not talking about circumcision either. So it's not circumcision or money, um, but we, we're gonna be hitting on one of these tonight. Uh, any other guesses? The big the, what is politics. it? Oh, politics? Uh, that could be very awkward, yeah. And the, uh, in all honesty, um, I don't, I purposely don't preach messages on, like, my personal politics. Like, you know, our responsibility as Christians, that's one thing. I've tried to be very careful through the years because I think to myself, I always feel like people, you know, if you have, if you're entrusted with a, a pulpit for a short season of your life, uh, don't, don't waste it on that. You know what I mean? Even though that's important. But it shouldn't be more important than the gospel, right? So, um, but no, so like the big category thing we're going to talk about, those are all good examples. The big category thing we're going to talk about tonight is sin. And um, I can tell you the thesis of this scripture that we're looking at tonight, even before we look at it, uh, don't do it, right? You know, like, don't commit it, you know? They're like, all right, we could round up early and go downstairs and eat pie. But I, I, I want to talk about more than just the concept of not doing that, because that's obviously something that we as believers in Jesus Christ understand we shouldn't engage in. But I think it's helpful to understand why, and it's also helpful to understand what's going on beyond, behind the scenes and also the tools that the Lord has given us uh, to overcome it. Right? It's not just a matter of like saying it's bad. It's also a matter of, okay, yeah, we acknowledge that it's bad, but what does that mean for me? And what kind of tools has the Lord given me to actually live a life that shows that I care about what his priorities are? And what, what can I be utilizing to take my life in a direction that I, that I ought to be going? And in fact, we're going to read a portion of scripture in just a moment. I'll tell you the chapter. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7. And our big question that we're going to be asking as we look at this portion of Romans 7 is why do I do what I don't want to do? Why do I do what I don't want to do? And you can tell even the way the Apostle Paul phrases some of these things in Romans chapter 7 that he was wrestling with this. And he was, um, I mean, even the way he phrases some of these statements here in this passage, 
you could see that this is one of those dilemmas that we as Christians, even someone that we would look at, like the Apostle Paul, and say, well, obviously he was someone who was strong in his faith, yet he was really wrestling with these things and what it looks like. And why did he do what he didn't want to do? So we're in Romans 7. We're going to pick up at verse 7 and go down to verse 25. It's on page 799, if you're using the Bibles in front of you. Page 799, Romans 7, starting with verse 7. This is what it states. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. And now this is, look at how he phrases this here. He says, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this portion of scripture, and we thank you for the fact that you've allowed us to carve out a little time in our schedule this evening to take a look at this and to begin thinking about why we do the things that we don't want to do. And obviously the Apostle Paul was wrestling with this and we as believers living many years later wrestle with it. And this is something that those that come after us are going to wrestle with as well. But Father, we know that this is a struggle that you've equipped us to deal with. We're not left powerless in the midst of this struggle. And Father, we also recognize that as each of us gather around here in this room, we do so as men and women who are in the same exact boat. If we were honest and if we were completely transparent, there is something that we can point to that is an area of weakness in our life. 
that we have felt like we have failed in regard to or it's produced shame or regret. There are things that are there, and yet our conscience is troubled by their presence. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture today, that you would inform us about what's really going on and that you would also remind us of the help and the hope that we have through your Son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you for all these things as we look at this portion of your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few years ago, I don't remember if I've shared this in this context. I, I know I've, I've shared this in uh, the context over at Court Creek, but I'll mention it here as well. But a few years ago, I received a call from a friend, and it was a call that I had actually been waiting to receive. It was a call I... I expected to be coming. Uh, in the weeks prior to him calling me, he had been caught in an affair. And, uh, and basically everything was just coming to light at this point. And the news was starting to spread and people were becoming aware of this information. And as you could probably imagine, there was a lot of fallout, there was a lot of damage related to this, all coming back to a decision that he had made. His wife was devastated. His children were furious. His reputation was damaged. And he also happened to have a moral clause in his contract with his employer that meant he would now lose his job, which also meant he was about to lose his home, which also meant he was also going to lose his income. That's pretty devastating, wouldn't you say? So life for him was about to change drastically. And, um, and when I got the call, I was waiting for the call. I had actually tried to reach out to him as well. Uh, but when the phone call finally came, we were able to talk to each other. He said something to me that I am 100% certain I will never forget. And I don't think I'll ever forget the tone in his voice. I don't think I'll ever forget the exact words that he said. Uh, sometimes when I remember quotes, I remember the gist of a quote. This is one of those quotes that I will not forget the actual Quote, but he said four words to me, and these were words that were spoken with such grief and such pain that when I think back to that moment, I, it's, not, it's not hard for me to, to find my tears starting to well up and my grief for him in the midst of all of that starting to uh, just kind of build up in my chest when I think about what he said. But in the midst of his smoking rubble, you know, in the midst of this decision that he had made, he said to me, as we were talking it through, he said, what have I done? So picture, you know, the scenario I just painted, and that's what he said, with grief and kind of a, a squeak in his voice, because you could tell he was holding back, he was fighting back, you know, just, just blubbering, basically. And he said, what have I done? He was devastated, he was filled with regret. Now, thankfully, in the years since this happened, there has been repentance on his part, and there has been reconciliation within his family. So I've been grateful to, to be able to witness that. I see the Lord restoring what has been damaged. But when I tell you that story, and obviously I left out key details so I can keep it relatively anonymous, um, but can you identify with that man's experience? Maybe not in that particular subject. You know, maybe, you know, in, in your day-to-day -day life, you, you you know, maybe an affair isn't something that, that you've wrestled with, but maybe it's something else that you can look at his experience and even kind of think through the words he said there. And we think back, there's probably a time in your life that you've said, at least in your head, what have I done? 
right? What have I done? You know, we've all made regretful decisions. We've all decided to do things, uh, sometimes on accident, sometimes very much on purpose, that were outside of God's will. And then we tend to look back at those moments with a little bit of confusion, wondering why did I make that choice? Why did I do that? It doesn't make sense, right? Even though we know Christ, we can still make poor decisions. And um, I think that that can happen, particularly when we start to treat the influence of sin way too casually, when we start to treat it like it's no big deal, or when we try to overemphasize our own level of personal strength. We start to make decisions that are like gradually drifting toward the type of things that we should actually avoid. So why do we do that? You know, why do we do that? You know, what have we done? Why do we do that sort of thing? Well, this portion of scripture talks about that. It talks about why we do what we don't want to do. And one of the reasons it gives us right off the bat is that sin has deceived us. So think about that for a second. Sin has deceived us. Let me reread a, a few of the early verses there. Let me reread verse 7 and some of the verses following it. But it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For, why, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire every kind of covetous desire. And then look down at verse 11, it says, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. It deceived me. And so that's part of the reason why we do what we don't want to do. We've been deceived by sin. So let me give you some context here of what Paul's talking about. He's doing something here in this chapter that he actually does in some of the previous chapters of the book of Romans. And he starts talking about our relationship to the Mosaic law. So the Mosaic Law, if you're looking through the, the Scripture, we're talking about the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books of the Bible. It's the Mosaic Law. It outlines the law that the Lord had given through Moses to the children of Israel. And in those Scriptures, we learn a variety of important things. We learn that God created us without sin, and we were free to live in a perfect relationship with Him. And then that all changed when Adam rebelled and sin entered into the human race. And the law speaks, when you're looking at the Mosaic law, it speaks of God's holiness and it speaks of man's sin. It specifies what actions of our hands and what intentions of our hearts are actually sinful. And it's interesting because the law itself is perfect. The law itself is not sinful, but what it does is it reveals our sin to us. And so Paul uses himself here as an example as he's speaking to the church at Rome. And he, he uses himself as an example of how the law reveals sin to us. So he speaks of the sin of coveting. Now, I don't know about you, um, but there's probably, you know, if you were writing this down uh, and wanted to use an example, maybe you would choose coveting as the sin that you were wrestling with, or maybe it would be something else. But I kind of get the impression that Paul was using this because this was something he was actually wrestling with. I think coveting was probably something he actually wrestled with because when you look at Paul's day-to-day -day life, there were a lot of things that other people enjoyed that the Apostle Paul was, was foregoing so that he could serve people. And I imagine in moments of weaknesses, he probably sat back and thought, boy, it'd kind of be nice to 
live the life that the Corinthians are living. They seem to live in comfort. It'd be nice to do this, and here I am writing half the stuff from prison, and I'm traveling all the time, and I never get any rest. And sometimes I go to different towns, and people beat me up and throw stones at me, and you know, uh, disparage my character and do all sorts of things. It seems like he's actually wrestling with coveting. And he says, for I would not have known what, this, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So again, I think that this was probably something Paul was wrestling with. But he also admits here that when he read the scriptures that told him not to covet, he actually felt pr provoked to rebel against that instruction. His sin nature would would seize that opportunity to egg him on to covet in response to the clear teaching of God's word. Does that sound familiar? Do you think you can relate to that? I won't um, pick on any of my children specifically, but I will tell you something that one of my four kids once told me. And they were talking about a, a particular season of life that they were in. And I said, why did you make those decisions? And they said, if I'm really honest with you, the reason I made those decisions was because you told me not to make those decisions. I was like, you did that because I told you not to do that? And this child said, yeah, that's exactly right. And then you think about it, and you think about your own life. Don't we do the same exact thing? Now, you don't have to admit this, but when you see one of those digital signs that tells you how fast you're going, do you ever look at that and say, I wonder how high I'd get that up to? No, you don't do that? You don't do that? I had another pastor admit to me once, and I was in a collection of pastors. And he said, when you see those, do you ever think to yourself, like, wonder how high I can get that up to? And all the other guys were like, yes! This is that like, and I was like, wait, everyone does that? Like, that, that wasn't my particular vice, but I was cracking up because so many people were like, I totally identify right now. I was like, you understand you're gonna get in trouble for doing that, right? But they felt provoked, do not speed. What does it do? Maybe I should speed. <laughs> and then you tell your children, you know, you tell the grapefruit or you tell the, uh, what was our fruit over here? The sweet potato, that's right. Or you tell the sweet potato, hey, mommy wants some rest now. I know you're incubating right now. I know you're growing, but stop making me sick to my stomach, right? And what is this, you know, this, this child that's incubating and you do? They, kind of, they crack their brand new baby knuckles and they say, well, mom, since you said that, you know, Obviously, they don't do it yet, but that's in nature's there, isn't it? You know, and, and when children grow up, what do they do? They listen to what you say so that they know how to disobey you creatively. Or they work together. I once asked one of my kids to help enforce a form of discipline that I was uh, enacting on one of their siblings. And uh, this, this child said to me, yeah, so can't really help you on that one, Dad. That would, that would be like aiding and abetting the enemy right now, and I can't, I can't. I was like, you're kidding me. I was like, come on, help me out. It's like, nope, I can't join you in this. But again, we all understand this, and the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, I'll hear the word of God, and sometimes instead of embracing what the word states, I'll look at what the word states and say, I think I'm gonna do the opposite. And it's not always so much as a defined thing in our heads, sometimes it's like this curiosity thing. Why do you suppose God tells me not to? Well, let's find out the hard way. Oh, now I have regrets in my life and shame. Okay, that's why he told me, okay. Well, what does the scripture tell us about the activity of Satan? When you look through the scripture, it tells us certain things about Satan and what he's doing. And some of the things that it tells us about Satan's activity is that he looks to devour us and he looks to deceive people. And since mankind joined in his act of rebellion against God, 
Now we struggle with external factors that are influencing us to sin, and we struggle with internal factors that are influencing us to sin. So we have the world, we have our own flesh, and we have the devil, all tempting us to go in the opposite direction that the Holy Spirit is seeking to lead us. And this is the battle that we're in right now, and the Apostle Paul certainly understood it. But it's interesting what it tells us. You don't have to turn there. I want to read you a few verses from the book of James. And it says in James chapter 1, verse 13 and following, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the law of God is holy, but sin is a deceitful liar, just like the father of lies, Satan, is a deceitful liar. So one of the reasons we do what we don't want to do is because we've been deceived by the false promises of sin. Because what sin does is it paints a pretty picture of what everything's going to look like if we give in to it, and then it conveniently leaves out the long-term consequences that we'll experience when we compromise our convictions for short-term pleasures that appeal to our flesh. And you have the deceitfulness of sin relegating the Lord to an afterthought in our minds. Because we get to a spot where we think, I just need this. And we forget that, no, what my heart truly craves is the Lord. The deceitfulness of sin convinces us to forget that there is going to be a day when our lives are going to be laid bare before the Lord and we'll give an account to him for what we did with our lives and what we did with the time that he blessed us with. And I imagine that most, if not all, the things that I just shared in the few moments that we've looking, been looking at this so far are things that I would say we're familiar with or mostly familiar with. I don't imagine that I just shared anything that uh, was earth-shattering to anyone in this room. But isn't it interesting how we can know all of this data factually, right? How I can know all this stuff factually, and yet we can still find a way to violate our conscience and ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit when he's speaking to us. Interesting, we can know all that and be convinced that it's true and still find a way to violate our conscience and ignore the Holy Spirit when he's speaking to us. It always amazes me about the presence of sin in my own life. You know, and I think to myself, like every time I've, I've ignored the voice of the Holy Spirit, I always regret it. And it's like, how can I know this data? I even went to, to college to study this data, right? It's information. I read it and study it all the time. And yet in those certain moments, so easy for us to just kind of like a switch, you just turn it off and you're like, eh, I don't want to hear, hear God right now. I, don't, I just kind of want to do my own thing. I think one of the things that the Lord, I can tell he's helped me through the years and continues to help me to notice that more. Because I think if I'm noticing that more, I'm less likely to give into it. But it's still a struggle, right? I definitely think I notice it more. But there are still times when it's like, I think I want to listen to my voice right now. And it always produces regret. But I think it's confusing. And I think it can actually... Uh, to a certain degree, have us wrestling with understanding our own actions. You know, because we'll look at what's going on and we'll be like, wait a second, I know all of this, 
And yet at the same time, and I even believe all of this, and yet I still find myself going in this direction over here. Why am I doing this? And the Apostle Paul even addresses that here. One of the reasons why we do what we don't want to do is, you know, first off, it's because sin deceives us. But secondly, it's because we don't even understand our own actions. So he's saying, he's like, we don't even understand what we're doing sometimes, right? We don't understand our own actions. Look at what he says. I'm not going to read all this, although I'm sure you were entertained as I read it the first time, particularly if it's... If this passage is new for you. But look at verse 13. He says, Do, uh, Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. And then he goes on, look at verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do. He says, I do not understand what I do. He says, For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I don't understand what I do. I'm doing what I don't want to do. I'm actually doing the things that I hate, and yet I'm still engaging in these things. Why am I doing this? If he's saying I can't stand coveting, why am I still coveting? You know, in the example that he uses here, right? So it can be challenging for us, I think, to, uh, for us to come to an accurate understanding of ourselves. Um, I think part of spiritual and social maturity involves developing, developing a deeper knowledge of our motives, uh, developing a deeper knowledge of our self-protective strategies and the things that, that contribute to, to the actions that we try to carry out. But I think even as we grow in these areas, we still puzzle ourselves. I think we're, we're puzzled by what we do. I've often asked myself, why on earth did you do that? Or in my case, a lot of times it comes down to, why on earth did you say that? I think sometimes some of my biggest regrets in life are things that I've said. Like, why did I say that? And then you spend the rest of your life remembering the dumb thing you said, probably even longer than the person that you said it to remembers it, right? And then you beat yourself up about it, and you're like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Sometimes I don't even have a good answer. You know, it's not like I could just sit down and say, oh, well, here's the self-protective strategy that I was utilizing in that moment because my heart was hard. It's like, no, dope. You don't even know, like, you don't even know what you're talking about, right? Don't even, just like the Apostle Paul said, I don't even know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I think we find ourselves in the same exact spot. And so Paul here, he reveals in this portion of Scripture that one of the reasons that we do what we don't want to do is because we don't truly understand our own actions. And I'd even add to that, you know, we don't even understand our own motivations sometimes, right? Now, again, there's nothing wrong with the commandments of God. And I'd encourage you to take a look at them. Uh, you know, Ephesians, or excuse me, not Exodus 20 references the Ten Commandments. There's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments of God. I, we actually have a, a, a rule in our house. We wanted our, our children to understand the Ten Commandments better and have them better committed to memory. And um, we limit how much Wi-Fi everyone can use. But if you exceed your Wi-Fi, you can get an unlimited gift of an extension for the rest of the day if you write out the Ten Commandments and give like a one-sentence explanation of each. And then you get unlimited Wi-Fi for the rest of the day. Do you think, adults, do you think that's a good deal? Yeah, no, I don't know. I, I think it's a great deal, right? Um, and uh, But in my mind, I was like, I want to make sure that at least the, the foundation of these things are well understood by my children before they move out of my home and into the world. And uh, again, you know, when we look at what the commandments of God say, there's nothing wrong with the commandments of God. There's nothing wrong with the will of God. Right? But there is something wrong with this world. This world and everyone who lives in it, we all experience the effects of being under a curse, Scripture says. 
Sin is rampant here. You don't even have to look for it. It'll come and find you, right? And even after we come to know Christ, we're still involved in a daily battle against sin's influence in our lives. It's trying to influence me. It's trying to influence you. It's trying to influence every single one of us. In Genesis 3.17, it says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So there, it tells us that when sin came into this world, this world was cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. And then in Romans 8.21, it says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So it's speaking about what the Lord's ultimately going to do when he fully restores creation. That curse is going to be lifted. It's part of the work that Christ came to this earth to accomplish, the lifting of this curse. So that's part of God's eventual plan. But right now, we live in a world that's corrupted by sin and we're influenced by sin. And so even though we become a new creation through faith in Christ, sin is still present around us. Sin is still present within us. And it likes to operate. And I want us to start thinking of sin this way. Don't think of it as a pet to nurture and take care of because it likes to operate like a cruel master. That's what it is, it's a cruel master. And it doesn't like to give up its control and it doesn't like to give up its influence in our lives. It's cruel to you and it's cruel to me. But there's a tension now that exists in our lives that didn't exist before we knew Christ. And that tension is between our old nature and our new nature. Our old nature, is egging us on to ignore God's voice and to rebel against God. But our new nature, directed by the Holy Spirit, actually desires to live in the light of Christ. There's this tension that's going on in, in our lives. Have you experienced that dilemma that Paul's talking about here? Right? That, that, he's, that he seems to be wrestling with, even as he's verbalizing these things or penning these things down in this passage. And again, even the way these verses are written, they display the baffling confusion that we wrestle with. You know, it's this back and forth way he speaks about these things uh, to illustrate the struggle of what he's saying. Let me read the way it's phrased in the ESV. I read it already from the NIV, but in the ESV it says it this way. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then it goes on to say, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So again, our own sin puzzles us because as we stand now, we are not finished becoming what God has ordained us to become. You are not a finished product yet. I am not a finished product yet. At the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ, we were declared righteous by God. Now what's happening in your life, if you've come to faith in Christ, so at that moment you were justified, the moment you trusted in Christ, you were declared righteous, you were justified. Now there's a process taking place in your life. It's called sanctification. And what the Lord is doing is gradually he's developing you and developing your holiness and your spiritual maturity. And all throughout your life, you're developing and hopefully growing more mature and becoming holier and, you know, in, in your practices and in your mindset and in your application of of, of scripture, but that's a process, isn't it? And it's not a process that's completed this side of heaven because what happens is all throughout our life, we're going through this sanctifying process, sanctified, this holiness that the Lord's producing in us, where hopefully your faith is growing stronger 
as you spend more time with the Lord. I believe it does, right? Your faith grows stronger as you spend more time with the Lord over time, growing in sanctification, but there's still one more thing left to come. And that's when we stand in the Lord's presence. Those of us who are his children, we're gonna stand in his presence and be glorified. We're gonna be given a brand new body and our old nature is gonna be done away and in eternity, you and I will not struggle with sin because we've been glorified. So we were justified, now we're being sanctified and someday we'll be glorified. But during this process of sanctification, sin tries to creep in and muddy that up a little bit, doesn't it? You know, the Lord's seeking to produce holiness in your life and helping your faith to grow, but sin likes to creep in, it likes to attempt to, to switch up or pervert what God is orchestrating. And the, the day's coming again where we're gonna be glorified and be made perfect in his sight. But right now we're in the midst of a struggle. Right now we're in the midst of a battle. So don't answer this out loud, but I just want you to answer this to your own heart for just a moment. How is your battle going? How's it going? The moment you trusted in Christ, you were declared righteous in the eyes of God. He sees you for what he's making. But he also recognizes that as he produces spiritual maturity and holiness in your life, as you walk with him, you're in the midst of a battle now. You weren't in the midst of a battle before you came to know him because you didn't care about those things. You just kind of gave in to your old nature and didn't real, really realize what was going on. But now the moment you trust in Christ, you're given a new nature and you're in the midst of a battle. So how's the battle going? How's the struggle going? Do you feel like you're seeing more and more victories the longer you walk with Christ? Do you feel like you're reverting back to a spot of immaturity? You know, these are questions I think that are healthy for us to wrestle with. We want these things on our mind. We want these things on our heart. I, I will say this, if you're struggling with something right now, don't throw in the towel and don't try and rely on your own strength to defeat it. You're not strong enough. Just admit it to yourself. Do yourself the favor. Just tell yourself, in and of myself, I'm not strong enough. However, Christ is strong and he likes to give you his strength and you know why sometimes we find ourselves right in the midst of sin and really doing battle with it instead of experiencing victory? Because sometimes we stand there and fight when we were supposed to flee. You ever hear that said about people? Certain people have the fight response and some people have the flee response to threatening things. Well, there's certainly moments where you're supposed to fight sin and fight temptation. There are other moments when you and I are supposed to just get out of there. So think about this. You know, if you're struggling with, um, you know, if you're struggling with an alcohol addiction, should you be spending a lot of time in places that serve alcohol or spending time around a whole bunch of people that are going to encourage you to drink alcohol? No. I remember when I was growing up, one of my favorite vices uh, was for several years, this always seems to surprise people. It doesn't surprise me because I know me. But for several years, I, I got addicted to smoking when I was in seventh grade. And it took me uh, until the end of ninth grade to finally quit. I couldn't imagine, like you wouldn't think that you'd get hooked on that so easily, right? It seems like, like, and how would I have access to all these cigarettes? My dad owned a grocery store. I had access to any of that stuff that I wanted. They sold cigarettes there. I just, and I worked the register. So guess who sold himself cigarettes? Me, right? And uh, so, and they were cheap back then. You get cigarettes, they were a dollar, right? 
and uh, and I worked and I had money and I'd buy myself cigarettes and I'd smoke all the time and and I remember at one point trying to figure out how many how many do I smoke and I never really got to a pack a day but there's 20 in a pack and I usually would only have about five left over at the end of a day and I'd struggle to make it through school because I just couldn't wait to get out of school so I could finally have a cigarette that was also back when you could smoke in the in the bathroom and not really get in trouble. Our bathrooms, like you'd open that door and like a big cloud of smoke would just come out of there. Um, now students would be expelled, but back then they were like, "All right, come on, get out of there," you know. And uh, that was so hard for me to break. And it was one of those things where part of the reason why it was so hard for me to break is because everyone I hung out with smoked, for the most part. So I was always around it. And if the people you're around constantly are doing the very thing that you struggle with, and yet you surround yourself with them, why do you think I was struggling so much? I'm smelling it when they're smoking, that it makes me want it and all that. And those are moments that I should have fled. I should have just got myself out of there and not kept putting myself in a context that was going to invite me to give in to that temptation. And you probably have things that you could list in your own life. But I know for me that took years. That was so hard for me to, as I was struggling with it. And finally, the Lord gave me victory over it. But there's still times like, you know, someone will walk by me and I, I'm not even a big fan of that now, but so, sometimes I'll just like catch a whip of it and all of a sudden I'm right back in seventh grade and I'm like, I can afford a pack of Newports, you know? So menthol cigarettes, right? That's why I always used to smoke. Endorsement for them? No. Crush them. <laughs> Right? But the idea was, sometimes I'd be like, I can fight this, I can fight it. And in those moments, what was I supposed to do? It wasn't always so much about fighting, and sometimes it was about fleeing. Get out of there. Get out of there. I didn't know what I was doing, though. One last thing I want to point out from this portion of Scripture tonight. We're not powerless. Don't rely on your own power. Rely on Christ's power, but you're not powerless. I'm not powerless. Because what has Jesus done for us? Well, through faith in Christ, we've been delivered. You've been delivered. You haven't been handed over to the things that are trying to destroy you. You've been delivered from these things. Look at what it tells us in verse 21 down to the end. I'll reread them. It says, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. You can see the old nature, new nature stuff there, right? And then verse 24, he says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me pause there. Christ our rescuer. Christ our redeemer. Christ our deliverer. Did any of you hear that story um, a few months ago about that girl in Wisconsin? that was taken captive for a few months. Hear about that? She was like maybe 12 or 13 years old. She was taken captive by some guy. Anyone hear about this? And then finally the day, uh, we're actually going out to Wisconsin uh, this week to work with some churches out there uh, this week. And I was thinking about this. Um, but yeah, this, this news story I saw took place in Wisconsin. This girl was held captive in a home by this guy for three months. He killed her parents and then held her captive. Uh, like 75 miles away from where her home was. And no one knew what had happened to her, whether she was alive or dead or what was happening. And finally, one day while he was gone, she got up the guts to just, she was so sick of being there, he'd make her hide under a bed. And uh, she'd have to be there all day. 
And, um, and, and then finally she just thought, you know what? I don't think he's in this house right now. She got out from under that bed and she walked outside and she didn't see him. And so she, I think she put like a pair of his shoes on. So, you know, like these giant shoes and she uh, just put like whatever she could that, that was available in the house there. And she just went outside to see like if she saw anybody. She found a lady walking her dog and she told the lady who she was and the lady took her into her house and the, the police got it, had it all figured out and figured out who the guy was and they arrested the guy and all that and she was set free. And I thought of that story in relation to what it tells us here in this portion of scripture because doesn't this portion of scripture tell us you know, I mean, look what it says. It says, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. So often, don't we think of sin as like some form of freedom? And what is it described as here? It's like being captive. It's like being tied up and thrown under a bed. You know, you're being held there by it. You're a, you, become, you make yourself like a prisoner of it. And so you have Paul describing our captivity in these verses, a captivity to sin. And imagine if that was the fate you were doomed to experience forever. The rest of your existence was going to be as a captivity to sin. I can't imagine a future that was defined by perpetual captivity to sin. So thankfully, Christ has intervened. He's the solution for our wretched condition. He's the one who delivers us from this body of death. We're delivered by God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, we still battle with sin, but we don't need to remain its captive forever. So let me end by giving you a small piece of advice that I read in an article that was released about three years ago. It's an article, uh, it was written by Gavin Ortland in 2016, and it's titled, Four Steps to Kill Nagging Sins. Four Steps to Kill Nagging Sins. And he suggested four biblical steps that I'll just recommend to us tonight as we finish up particularly if we've been giving in to nagging sins that have been hanging around for way too long, things that you really feel like you're a prisoner to. And his advice rooted in scripture was this, if you wanna kill nagging sin in your life, you need to do these four things, he said. You need to hate it, starve it, corner it, and overwhelm it. Hate it, starve it, corner it, overwhelm it. Hate it, starve it, corner it, overwhelm it. What did he mean by these things? Well, he's saying, don't minimize your sin and treat it like a pet. Hate it. Don't feed it. Starve it. Don't give it the opportunity to, to integrate itself all throughout all spheres of your life. Corner it. And don't falsely believe it's more powerful than Christ, because it's not more powerful than Christ overwhelm it, overcome it by the power of Christ. That was his counsel, to hate it, starve it, corner it, and overwhelm it, overcome it with the power of Christ. So why do we do what we don't want to do? Well, we do these things because we've been deceived. We do these things because we don't understand our own actions. But again, Christ has delivered us from the power of sin. And in him, we're given the grace to overcome and I'll read one last verse or two verses really for us as we finish up. But in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, it says this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray.
Lord, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together this evening and meditate on its content. and Just think about the things that you're revealing to us in it. Lord, we know that we struggle with all sorts of things. Every single one of us in this room can really recreate a long list of, of things that we're doing battle with. But at the same time, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to remember that in the end, you're the one who overcomes and you help us to overcome through knowing you and loving you and trusting in you. And so, Father, we pray that we would experience the victory that you already secured for us when your son, Jesus Christ, rose from death. Because on the cross, he paid for our sin and then he rose from death. And when he did so, he defeated sin. He defeated Satan and he defeated death. We know that that victory that he secured is ours as we trust in him. So thank you for sharing that victory with us. Lord, we pray that you give us your strength as we're right now in the midst of all the things that we struggle with. And we're just grateful for your goodness and your grace and your love and for reminding us of these things uh, this evening as we take a look at this portion of your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 